morning. It's morning for me, <laughs> but wherever the, in the world you may be, this is the Quantum Business Book Club, a series uh, that is part of You Know Everything, my weekly podcast that I run. The Quantum Business Book Club is a monthly gathering. We are actually live on Discord today, which is really exciting. I've got Siri joining me as well, which unexpected. Siri, you can bugger off. Um, so with the Quantum Business Book Club and with You Know Everything, I believe that ideas are floating around in the ether. They have been shared. They have been unpacked. They have been implemented in systems and frameworks. And some of these ideas are very, very old. Some of them are very modern. What the Quantum Business Book Club allows us to do is work through and work with some of the most brilliant creators and innovators and thought leaders that have existed. And so I feel like I'm time traveling. I feel like I get to quantum leap every time I read because suddenly I'm sitting across the table from someone who has thought a hell of a lot more about a concept than I have. So with the Quantum Business Book Club, my goal is that we all get to sit across from the table with each other and toss around some of these ideas. Today, we're going to be talking about Blue Ocean Strategy. I think a book, the book was written about 12 or 13 years ago by Harvard business professors. So you know it's good. They have since reprinted this book millions and millions of times. It's in 60 different languages. It has become its own concept. You'll hear business talk about a blue ocean strategy all of the time. And what they're really referring to is that in business, competition tends to be a driver. Businesses are so obsessed with worrying about what the other people in their ecosystem are doing, what they're charging, how they're doing it, who they're going after. They lose sight of what it is they do and importantly, why they're doing it. When they lose that why, they lose the connection with their customers, clients, and buyers. And so what Blue Ocean Strategy does and does beautifully is create a way to double down on value and to really ask yourself, not just what is it that I do or why am I doing it, but how does that really connect with the people it's meant to serve? And so whether you're a service-oriented business or not, people are buying what you're selling for a reason. With the blue ocean strategy, what you're really doing is you're getting out of the chum, like out of like a bunch of sharks circling some small little fish, just trying to get a bite. It's bloody. It's, it's desperate. It's predatory. It's unsustainable. When you create your blue ocean strategy, what you do is you sail into wide open, completely clear seas. Where does you and your opportunities? And that's it. What inspired me so much about this is because value is, is such a key component to business. I learned this in the very first business that I created because we couldn't compete. We, we couldn't swim with the sharks. We didn't have the gear. We didn't have the resources. Like we were so lacking in anything that should make someone successful from experience again to resources. So it was a recording studio. I mean, like incredible not just incredibly competitive, but the, the, the difference between entry level and, um, like famous is that, you know, we were charging like a thousand dollars for a week. Some of the studios at that time, this was, this was right on the edge of like digital and well, analog evolving into digital recording. There were studios that were charging a hundred thousand dollars for a week. 
And like the, the, you know, you're walking into these huge, expansive 10,000 square foot spaces that are mic'd for orchestral recordings, Patrice, you know what I'm talking about? They have, they have these microphones that are $40,000, $100,000. They're recording into these 98 channel desks. They have the, the most famous, the most reputable, the most sought after gear. They have ample instruments. The, the way that this studio was built was actually mimicking the, the studio that I'm referring to because it's the studio that I was working at before I started my own business was built to, to not just mimic, but augment Abbey Road in the UK. And it was actually the manager and, and um, head engineer at the time had been the manager and head engineer for Abbey Road. And I mean, the, the acoustic treatment in this space was like, like people traveled all around the world to come. So now we're opening a studio, um, a couple of K's like less than a mile away, just over a mile away. And, you know, we've got four mic ends the, originally the studio was like the size of a closet. I mean, it was fucking tiny. We were able to mic into a larger live space, but we couldn't see it. And if you know what I'm talking about, that's like a pretty big, pretty big problem. And so we kept trying to think like, how can we get artists? We had a whole bunch of connections. We had a network and that was great. And they were very happy to use the cheapest space available, knowing that we, we at least had the skills to get things going. But as we started to build this business, we ended up taking over the space that was next door. So we had a much larger footprint and also more expenses. We borrowed a lot of money. We borrowed six figures to invest in a, a much um, higher definition sound system. We bought a desk. So we started really investing into this business. And I couldn't figure out how to charge more than what we had initially started charging. A lot of businesses struggle with this, right? And so with that, I kept thinking, well, how do we get higher caliber artists? How do we raise our prices? That was like the most pressing question that I had. But what I realized is you can't, you, you can't, what is it like squeeze a rock? I don't think that's the saying, but if someone doesn't have money, they can't pay you more money and artists, musicians, baby bands, emerging artists. And, and I deal with this all of the time in business right now. We'll actually get to that a little bit later. Where do you invest when you're first getting started? What do you really focus on? And for the most part, when people are getting started in a business, their access to money is somewhat limited. And so that is the first constraint within which you're dealing. And so I started asking myself, well, how, like, it's not just about raising prices. It's about raising this, the quality of audio that's coming out. It's about raising the reputation of this studio. And typically that happens by building relationships with record labels because record labels once upon a time used to invest in the actual recording of the product, because obviously the higher quality product, the, the more sales that they're going to get. Right. So I kind of started along this path and I realized we needed like record labels. That was really the answer. So working with artists with labels and then developing relationships with labels. I ended up starting my own record label, but that's a different story. So that's the way that I think, like, I think I thought I was so excited about digital music and Napster and the technology that was evolving. Firstly, I was young. I did not have a business that was like wholly dependent on existing infrastructure, but two, in my mind, the only thing that I thought about was everyone can listen to music now. That can only be of benefit to people who make music or make money from music. And so that was really like, okay, 
And so we're going to probably refer back to this framework because I'm realizing like it aligns to so many different things, but I'm going to start going through some of the visuals because again, the authors of Blue Ocean Strategy really wanted to create a visual representation of strategy, like quite literally, how do you map to your blue ocean. And so this will be linked in the show notes for anybody watching live. Feel free to join me. It is blueoceanstrategy.com. Not, not hard to find. And uh, we're, we won't have time to go through everything, but I'm going to go through what I felt like were some of the most um, like inspiring points. Again, like this is, this is business strategy. Okay. So we're not like reinventing the wheel here. Um, this is a different framework. This is a different way of thinking about things and it should help every single business understand. And even anybody starting a business, or if you've been paying any attention to me, you know, what I define businesses is like taking your shit seriously. So whether you're an artist and you want to start exhibiting or whether you are in a different like employment position, maybe you're a full-time caretaker, maybe you are working at a full-time job, maybe you're just looking to get back into the workforce after some kind of a break or back into business. This is a really fantastic way to think about you as a product or your business in terms of how are you going to find the people that are going to essentially invest in what you're doing, whether they're your customers, clients, or buyers, or the people hiring you or yourself, <laughs> might even be friends and family. And essentially demonstrate to them that what you're doing is of such high value, they're compelled to get behind you, to invest in you. The first thing we're looking at here now is, and this, like, the, if you see nothing else for today, um, and I'll try and walk listeners through this as well, this is like, how do you get to value innovation? And that's really what Blue Ocean Strategy is about. That's when you arrive in your Blue Ocean, is when you have innovated on value. Now that's not innovating on product. That's not innovating on marketing messages. That's not disrupting an, an industry. What that is, is finding a way to make what you're already doing that much more valuable. And again, oftentimes this might even meant, this might even be about decreasing price. This is kind of what like really piqued my interest because in the main industry that I'm in for the, our purposes today, it's coaching. Um, the like most, I don't know how you want to describe it. I'm going to call it fucking boring. <laughs> but most coaches, you know, they start with one to one, then they move to group, then they start a high ticket mastermind, and then they like 10x their one to one pricing. Oh, God. Um, okay. Like, is what you're doing that different? I mean, what what made you go from a five or $10,000 coach to a $25,000 or $100,000 coach besides your coach that did that exact same thing telling you to charge that? We're going to get into my little rant a little bit later. I'm going to keep it, keep it moving. So when you double down on value innovation, there are some cost strategies to look at. And ultimately, like how much does it cost for you to do what you do? And then how can you create really innovative methodologies within that? That will likely end up saving you on cost. And then you can actually start playing with your pricing. One of the other things that Blue Ocean Strategy really does is focus on, you know, where where is the Blue Ocean? It's not just where nobody, like none of your competitors are, but it's also not what your existing customers are either. So when you look at the cost, not just the cost to you, but the cost to your buyer, what are they giving up? 
What are they saying no to when they say yes to you? What is something that they're very familiar with and very comfortable with that you're asking them to abandon in order to try what you've got? There's a lot of costs involved. And when you really look at those, at like the last thing you're actually looking at is like in your internal business. And this is in direct contradiction to a lot of the stuff that I talk about just in terms of like financial management, because you'll hear me say the fastest way to make more money is reduce costs. Yeah, that's pretty old school business strategy. I find a lot of businesses are, especially new businesses are investing very heavily in a whole bunch of different things internally because you kind of don't know what works. This, this strategy is definitely based on once you have an idea of what works and you figure that out just by testing and iterating and, and getting into your blue ocean strategy as quickly as possible. Your buyer value has to go up when your value innovation is discovered. And so that is when you get a very clear understanding of cost versus value. And that overlap is where the value innovation happens. Again, um, this is not about competition. Most, I think in most of these, like you look at a SWOT analysis, which is what one of these, one of the slides that we're going to look at reminded me a lot of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Strengths, internal weaknesses, internal opportunities and threats are all about your external market, what everybody else is doing. And so this framework, it, it, I think it's so powerful because you get to really insulate and you stop paying attention to what everybody else is doing. That's not where the innovation lies. So that was the, the first thing that really, really inspired me because immediately I thought like, it's not just about raising prices. It is most like the, the purest essence is about value and how can not just you communicate value, but how can you offer value to people who have yet to experience what it is that you're selling or doing? So I'm going to move kind of quickly through these only because of time. And really what I want to offer you is to go through the most basic steps and really get your wheels spinning. Again, you can go to the website, blueoceanstrategy.com. They give it all away on there. Not only do they give away each one of these slides that I'm going through, um, they also give you examples. They give you case studies. This is something that has become... I mean, it's like a whole course in, at Harvard that you can do now. Um, and I forgot to actually like walk through the last visual of that slide. So it's essentially two overlapping triangles. One triangle is facing down, the other triangle is facing up. Cost faces down, buyer's um, value faces up, and then value innovation is where there's the overlap. So again, when you're really looking at like bringing down cost not just cost of goods sold or the costs internally in your business, but the decision-making cost for your buyer, the accessing your buyer costs, so on and so forth. And then you raise the actual value that they're receiving. That's where you get value innovation. So this next chart is about like actually mapping out where is your blue ocean strategy. Now, this is going to be a little more nuanced depending on what it is that you do, um, where you're doing it. Like this has a lot more to do with it, just kind of like your environmental factors. So this is just a simple graph. And what you're plotting is the offering level. So you're literally rating yourself from low to high on what you now consider your competing factors. So this is like what is traditionally happening in your industry. So for me, it would be like price, one-to-one, -one, group, online, in-person, corporate, like so on and so forth, right? Um, like education, 
automation, like the different things that you kind of see other people doing. So um, like as an example, just for some of the people in the Discord room right now, you can think about like digital art, physical art, prints, shipping costs, online website, um, agents. So you're, you're kind of looking at these different factors and then you're literally just rating. It doesn't really matter what order. If you're looking at this um, visual, what you're seeing is, is a typical dot point graph that plots two different lines. So you're looking at yourself and then you're, you can look at broad competition. You can also map out a couple different competition competitors. I know I said, I know I said this isn't about competition, but what you're going to discover when you actually map out these plot points is where you stand out from everybody else. That's a pretty good indicator of where you can start mapping your blue ocean strategy. So in the example that we're looking at, you see a red line and a blue line. The blue line is highest and moves furthest away from the red line at the high value. That's really where, where you're at high value and high competing factors. That's kind of where your blue ocean is going to be. So that's a little harder to explain um, visually what we're looking at. But again, what we're talking about is really looking at a canvas so that you can capture where you're currently at right now. And, and more, not so much in, even in comparison to everybody else, but like, what are you doing really, really well? Where are you adding very high value and at like the highest points of like competition? And the highest points of competition are just quite literally where, where do they cluster? Where are the most of them at? And so you might only have one of these, like as an example, like a shitload of experience, whereas, you know, and again, I'm kind of con comparing and contrasting this to the coaching industry. A lot of my peers, I'm using that in air quotes, <laughs> might not have 20 years of entrepreneurial experience, the education, the failures, the successes, like the actual business acumen behind them. Um, that's a huge opportunity for me, right? So in the in the recording industry that we were working in, our pricing was actually a really big opportunity. Now it was a low value per se, so we were very competitive with that. But the other thing that we had was a lot of experience. We had a lot of flexibility because we were small, because we were hungry. We were kind of willing to do things that other businesses weren't willing to do. And we knew that that was a short-term strategy for us. But the last thing that we had was a lot of, like we were working with like really cool music. And I don't say that to like brag, but you know, we were into like punk rock, into metal, into like pretty avant-garde sounds. And a lot of the other, the bigger studios just weren't set up for that. They didn't have the same gear. You know, if you're doing hundred thousand dollar productions, you're working with pop music. The way that a pop album is recorded is very differently than the way that a metal album or even just like sludgy, chunky, like stoner rock that was really big in the 2000s, right? So we had this like opportunity value because all of our people were using the gear that all of our people wanted to use. And there was a couple other partnerships below us was a gear hire studio and a rehearsal studio. And then on the bottom level was a radio station that was by design, my friends. So we were able to start leveraging a lot of these partnerships and get our clients access to things that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten access to. And then when we started the record label, like that was only compounded. And so, you know, what we looked at was like flexibility, ingenuity, um, a willingness to DIY 
in a way that like other studios just were not set up to. That was our blue ocean strategy. And that, you know, the, the, like also really leveraging the network of artists in general, that was just not something that was happening, not even at like the highest level, but like quite literally one rung up there just, there was a huge gap in the marketplace for digital recording studios at that time because they were perceived as being like really shitty and then like the artists that you worked with were really shitty. So we, that's where we really started with this value offering is like, what if we can offer a very similar level of quality and therefore attract a much higher quality artist so that we're getting the attention of higher level partners whose interests are based in really great, affordable albums. So the strategy canvas, again, it, like don't overthink it. It kind of it's easy to overthink. You're just kind of looking at some of the more like obvious competition points and then just rating yourself like on a scale of like low to high and just seeing where you think some of the other people, I know there's probably a couple other people in your experience that you look at and you're like, I either wish I could do it like them or I hate that I'm not doing it like them. <laughs> it's the points that you are actually comparing yourself on that is useful for the strategy canvas. But again, we're not going to get bogged down in competition. Okay. Okay. So the next step is the six stages of the buyer experience cycle. So I'm just trying to make sure that these are big enough on my computer. I found this really helpful because as we start to look at blue ocean strategies, what we stop doing is thinking about our current buyers. That is not where your blue ocean exists. The other thing we start thinking about, and you've heard me harp on about this like a million different times, is the cycle of change. And so a successful business is able to grow, well, establish, scale, and grow because they understand the cycle of change in their business. That's what we're kind of getting into when we start talking about our buyers in the six stages of buyer experience. And then we start looking at, well, who are, who are our potential newbies, right? So um, environmental friendliness, fun and image, risk reduction, convenience, simplicity, productivity. So these are the six utility levels. This is based on psychology. This is based on management theory, on business theory. Like this is, if you wanted to simplify as much as you possibly could, why is someone going to give me money or an exchange for something that I give them? This is loosely going to be it. So like in risk reduction, that's when we think like very much about like the cost for the buyer. Um, fun and image. I mean, branding is like what makes, you know, a Gucci handbag different than like a canvas handbag in terms of utility, nothing in terms of fun of it and image, absolutely everything. So you can just kind of start to just map out again, you kind of rate yourself on low to high, what they're looking at, um, in, in this particular framework, as you look at currently, like what is your industry doing? And then where is the potential for this blue ocean strategy? And really thinking about how, like, how am I already approaching what I'm doing and where's the potential? Where is the possibility? That one's pretty simple. I, I, again, I like things that make things simple. So if you think like, why is someone buying? There's only one of six reasons. And you, you probably take a couple of those. Um, you probably don't tick all of them. And so it's not about trying to do everything and be everything for everyone. You've heard that a million times as well. This is a lot more about like really honing in on why someone's buying from you right now. Where it gets interesting though, is your blue ocean strategy might lay in why they're not buying from you. And so creating a, a more fun, 
um, you know, a branded offering or potentially like simplifying, just making something like a one click to buy, or like you're, you're reducing buyer decision-making by only having one thing at a time that they can buy from you. So again, tons of different ways of thinking about this, but, um, in terms of blue ocean strategy, this is where, like, you can see we're kind of dialing in, like we, we're creating like an opportunity map. Then we're looking at what is the buyer really seeking out. And you can start to see like, we're getting, we're, we're you know, we're like going from a country on Google maps to the state <laughs> from here. This is where we start talking about the three tiers of non-customers. So, and you'll see, if you were looking at this, what you see are concentric circle. Uh, are they concentric? Amanda? <laughs> They concentric circles. You see like circles within circles, right? And so your current market is red. It's the red ocean. It's the bl bloodied ocean. And then this first tier are your soon-to-be customers. The second tier are your refusing customers. And the third tier are completely unexplored. Blue Ocean Strategy focuses on that third tier. The tier one are people that are probably looking at you and your competitors. So that, you know, in terms of like pricing and cost, you now have to figure out what is like, how are you going to differentiate yourself from the other people kind of doing what it is that you do? Tier is an interesting place to look because these are the people that are refusing. So like as an example for my coaching, um, oftentimes when I'm working with somebody, what I need to understand first and foremost is, is investing me in me the best thing for their business. At the outset, most businesses are going to take a pretty significant investment. And I'm the first coach that will tell you I, it might not be coaching. <laughs> okay. So as an example, accountants, accountants and bookkeeping are something I'm going to suggest to anyone who is not an accountant and bookkeeper to get in place. That is at a cost. If your business is not cash flowing at a certain point yet, or like you were you were somehow born to be this level of like accountant and financier in your business, um, just investing there first and making sure that you're getting things going to a level that you can afford to pay for that and afford to pay for ancillary services like myself. But like I said, there are some opportunities in there. There's some people that are really fantastic um, at, at managing their finances. There's some people that are really great at budgeting. There's some people that just have this like innate scent for money in money out. There's some people who don't give a fuck about money in money out, how much money's in their account, et cetera. They, you know, they have a very different energy around money. That is an opportunity, but the tier three are the unexplored. The people who probably don't even know what coaching is, who don't get what coaching is, who have actually created a shitload of success for themselves, and they're looking to quantum leap to that next level, and they're continuing to do all of the same things in their business, and they just keep hitting this wall. So the people that like don't really even know what coaching is, which is actually a really strong, like a huge part of the population. So in my recording business, to continue to beat this dead horse of an analogy, <laughs> Uh, explored were artists that had never worked with a recording studio because they didn't think it was accessible for them. And what we realized is there were a lot of artists with full-time jobs who are incredible musicians who, who actually had a certain level of audio quality that they expected to be met and they did want to pay for it. They couldn't afford the hundred thousand dollar studios or even the $10,000 a week studios. They're working to support their gigging and their recording so that they can become full-time musicians. 
And that became this real blue ocean for us because that there there's a certain level of musician that like can really play their instrument and they can walk into a studio and record and finding those those they're super serious they're so serious that they're willing to work the warehouse jobs or the coffee shop jobs the whatever jobs so that they can just get back on the road get back in front of their people play their instruments etc so finding artists that were like not okay with the the uh, in the early to mid 2000s the digital recording quality especially for like consumer level like uh, just like anybody can buy the gear because it's affordable, didn't didn't make sense. So you know, by the time we were three months into the studio, we had a hundred thousand dollar piece of gear for recording and a, and a desk that we were able to use that was that was the highest level quality you could get for what we were charging, probably in the country. I was living in Australia, so uh, I'll give Melbourne a, a miss. There was probably some really great things happening in Melbourne, but I digress. So um, you know, our blue ocean was was finding those artists and. I know when you think punk rock, you think really shit quality, but there's like a very specific sound. And at that time, there was really, really popular music that was coming out. And then when you get to the metalheads, though, like they are phenomenal musicians when they know how to play their instruments and their expectation for sound quality was like high. <laughs> so that's why you get so many artists that were so disappointed with the fidelity in their records is because they just, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have the right setup for recording. And so we focused very much on that. And we created a super, we remodeled the studio that we were in. We created this super vibey environment. We hired like a designer to come in who was a friend of ours who knew the vibe and knew the feel and so on and so forth. So like we really focused on the experience and the quality of our output and that caught like wildfire. So looking at your current market and, and I love this exercise because what you're saying is like, who am I competing with? So in my financial consulting firm as an example, um, most people think accountants are just like really expensive and just cost businesses money. Okay. So then why aren't people hiring accountants? Well, when you look at other small businesses or you look at firms that need extra help, it's mainly because it was like building that relationship is challenging. The onboarding cost with an accounting, with an accountant or an accounting firm is pretty high for you to, in order, like, it's almost like you might as well do it yourself because you've got to give them the books and you've got to, oh, that reminds me, I did. I need to, need to hook up with my accountant. <laughs> you need to give them the books, it's the end of the month. Uh, you know, there, there's just, there's a lot that needs to happen there. And so our like unexplored, our blue ocean strategy was working with those mid, mid to large cap small businesses that basically were only willing to invest in AP and AR. So they had, they had the most basic entry level books being kept and they were continually frustrated with the cost and the process of onboarding a, a CFO, a controller, like a high level accountant. Same thing with um, smaller businesses that weren't necessarily ready for the expense of a CFO. Like how can you give them that experience without that cost? And so we developed a, an auditing service essentially where we'd come in for three months and really what we were doing is seeing, is this someone we even want to pursue for a long-term relationship? Or can we give this person enough value that they can go into their business and find the profits they need to then justify the expense of a higher level input and higher in their business? So um, I kind of went on a rant with that one. But this, like, when you stop thinking about, like, 
doubling or duplicating the people you're already selling to. And you start thinking about who isn't buying and why. Is it because my competition's outpacing me or doing something I can't do? Okay. So let's not worry about those people. The, you know, some people are refusing coaching right now because they've had a really bad experience. Interesting. Some people are refusing coaching right now because they just don't even really get what a coach does. Interesting. So, you know, it's like some people are refusing coaching because they need an accountant or an HR professional or a marketing strategy to even be able to afford the coach. Interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to move on from this one. Cause I think I, this was like, this is where my brain is like currently percolating at, especially in terms of marketing strategy. So next we do start to kind of look at like get clarity on red ocean versus blue ocean. Okay. So and red ocean, and you, you've heard me talk about before, like what I call old business, old world business, new world business. I think that's another reason that this framework like really fucking tickled my pickle is because like world business is all about competition. It's all about taking your competition out. It's all about dominating your competition. It's focusing on your competition and letting that inform your new strategy. To me, new world business is all about you. It's all about you and that one person you're serving in the moment. And how can you make sure that that one person experiences such a positive exchange that of course they're going to come back and obviously they're going to tell everybody they know about you, right? So, and like, again, there's, there's a lot of different breakdowns for Blue Ocean Strategy, but industry, strategic group, buyer group, scope of product, functional or emotional orientation and time are ways that you can really just compare and compare old world to new world. So again, what you're kind of asking yourself is what have we always done? What are the assumptions that we're making in business? You know, a couple of years ago, the assumption, especially for my accounting firm was you had to be in office. That assumption, we knew that assumption didn't exist. This was one of our advantages. We'd always been working remotely with our clients and encouraging that as much as possible. But at like, you know, these mid to large cap businesses, their, their assumption is, is your accountant is working in the office with you. Um, and there's so many inefficiencies created from that as well. And especially for accountants, which are like a pretty insular personality type that like all that needs to happen is, you know, a Zoom call or a Slack ping or a team's meeting. There are ways of working around this expectation that like proximity is like the determining factor for success. Same with recording, you know, the, before you, you had to take the whole band and all your gear to the studio and record. Now people can mic in from anywhere in the world and you can use different types of software to mimic different pieces of gear. And no longer do you need to have this like centralized experience I'm not going to get into like the the advantages and disadvantages in music and playing and things like that. But like the, it's like these assumptions that are being made in your business, in your work, in your industry, by your customers, by yourself, like all day, every day. That's what like, as you start to build out your blue ocean strategy, you're going to need to break those down and start questioning. Why does it have to cost this much? Why does it have to be distributed in this manner? Why does it have to go in this packaging? Why does it need this marketing strategy for the most part? It's because that was an old world business being successful and doing it their way. And that worked. And so they're now using that as evidence as to why you should do that. 
That is red ocean, old world business strategy, like to a fucking T. Do what I do, follow my one size fits all system and get caught up in the chum and churn with all the other guppies and sharks and fucking scavengers on the ocean floor, right? Start moving through some of these pretty quickly only because we'll be here for a thousand years. Otherwise, we've already been here for a minute. So I think you need to go through all of these frameworks. I think certain ones are going to speak to you and really pop out to you like the cost and val- the co- the cost and buyer's value to find value innovation. That one jumps out at me. The three tiers of customers really jumps out at me. There's another one we'll get to that really jumps out at me. It's where I'm really focusing, but they do, we'll talk very quickly through their sort of like best practice suggestions in terms of how to start implementing, how to be successful, and then things that could potentially throw um, a spanner in the works as you're kind of executing on your blue ocean strategy. The thing is the um, four actions framework. And so this is actually kind of a twofer because what you're doing is you're looking at different ways of kind of breaking down what's exist, what's happening. And wing is essentially creating a grid here. So it's four boxes. You've seen this plenty of times. It's a matrix is another way of thinking about it, but you're kind of comparing and contrasting. It looks just like a SWOT analysis to the strengths, weaknesses on the top, opportunities and threats on the bottom and four boxes, right? So this is about eliminate, raise, reduce, and create. So what are some of the factors, the key deciding factors in your industry that should be completely eliminated? What are some of the factors that you think need to be raised? So things that people aren't talking about. What are things that need to be reduced? So not just not eliminated, but reduced. And then um, what are some opportunities? What are some ways of thinking and then messaging and offering value that can be created? So um, just because I've been on my little coaching industry rant, because I think the coaching industry is like getting really, I think it was like a four letter. So when I first started, I I don't know if I've told this story like in depth. Um, I'm just, most of you have heard it, but for our listeners who have yet who have yet to hear, uh, I was working in the cannabis industry when I retired from the music industry. I had no idea who the fuck I was. I was like, I had been a band manager for ten years. I'd you know been in music for twenty years. That was my entire identity. Uh, like I took, I had so much pride. I had so um, I was in so much attachment to that label that when I released it, I was. Like, you know, I went to yoga teacher training and thought I was going to be a yogi, which is hilarious. Um, I'm still a yogi, definitely not a yoga teacher. <laughs> and uh, so I flip-flopped around for a little while. There was an opportunity going for like an executive level leadership position in Colorado. A friend of mine pointed it out to me. I went for it. I ended up getting it. Um, and I was cocky as fuck. I just assumed that because I was so successful and I created you know, world renowned artists. Like I could just do that in the cannabis industry all day. And what I like that street cred, the old, you know, even the old ways of me doing things just did not, it translated, but like no one spoke my language. Right. And so I, I very, I had was working with a career coach when I transitioned into that job and I had a phenomenal experience with them. So I asked them where they got their accreditation because I figured I need to like up the ante on my leadership skills immediately. Then it was one of those kismet. Like I called, I said like, hey, when's your next intake? They're like in two weeks. And I was like, sign me up, pay in full, let's do this. So that's when coaching started. And at the time I wasn't clear. I knew that like the best of the best had coaches. 
I kind of thought of coaches like personal trainers. Like, sure, when you're like a movie star, it makes sense for you to have a personal trainer. But like what layman, you know, what regular person can afford $1,000 a month for a personal trainer? Like coaching. I was like, oh, sure. When you're like a CEO or, you know, when you're running this like massive company, um, you get a coach who's some like 80 year old white man who can help you. And they probably charge like a ridiculous amount of money. I think I'd read like Jensen Sarah's, um, you were a badass at that point. So I was like familiar, but she was one of those like super high ticket coaches. Right. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I had no intention of becoming a coach. And then I, in my study and in my practice, what I realized is I'd actually been coaching my entire career. That was like the way I was hardwired was through curiosity and commitment and really honoring the other person's vision. I don't really have an agenda of my own. This is why I was always so successful with artists because I could very clearly understand and see their vision and then create the tangible plan for it. It's what I now do in business. It's what I was doing at the cannabis company. And so I started mentoring people in the organization to practice with full transparency around it. I, I am doing a coaching certification. I need to practice coaching. Would you let me do that? We have a mentorship program in the organization. I'm going to approach it as a coach, which means I am facilitating. I am not talking down. I am not telling you what to do. There's no expectation of reciprocity here, which a mentorship is. There's, there's that with the mentorship. Anyhow, rant. Um, I started practicing and, and loved it. And like, it was such an amazing fit. When I finished up very abruptly in the cannabis industry, everybody that I had been mentoring, I gave them the opportunity to continue working with me. And for a price, they all signed up. I reached out to a handful of my music people and I said, hey, remember how you always used to come for me for help and guidance? That's my job now. And the kicker is I'm not allowed to tell you what to do because I think that is like the defining factor for coaching. Um, and yeah, everybody was like, absolutely. Where do we sign up? I had people, I had, yeah, I had people coming out of the woodworks. It was, it was shocking. It was one of those like very, I had zero attachment to it. I had no intention for doing it. I said yes. And then the universe was like, let's open all the doors for you. So that is how you find me here today. Okay. Long story short. Now, very quickly, as I got onto Facebook and social media and started marketing my own business, I realized like, oh, there's a lot of coaches out here and they're not all good. I did my own market research. I signed up for a lot of high ticket coaches. You know, I kind of like, I like to, I like to deconstruct the competition and not like break them down, but I just, I like to see how business works. That's another thing that I've always done. I, I pick, you've heard me talk about the strategy a million times, like pick some of your luminaries, the people that you think are most successful and doing it. Like they're either where you want to be or they're doing it in a way that you really fucking respect and are inspired by. And so I did that with a lot of coaches when I first started and discovered a lot of things, which I'm not going to get into right now. But so I did my own little, oh, I have to move this to the other screen. I did my own little framework here. I'll just lay it right on top. Um, I did it for both coaching and uh, the financial consulting firm, just so you can see, and I can continue working through some of the examples that I've been sharing. But in terms of eliminate, like first and foremost, the confusion around coaching, mentoring, and consulting, teaching, guidance, guru. I mean, you hear these words thrown around a lot, but I, I don't think most people understand what they mean. My most read article ever is quite literally the difference between, or the definition of a coach, why we're not consultants, mentors, teachers, um, or guides or therapists. That was actually the fourth one. So um, the other thing that I think is bullshit are these one size fits all systems. 
This, my friend, is a framework. It's a way to take something that is massive and break it down step by step, but ultimately like you fill in the blanks, right? I think a lot of people are selling this one size fits all magic spell of a guaranteed result. And that's amazing for a consultant. That is not what coaching does. So anywho, I kind of went through like nepotism. This idea of coaching coaches, coaching coaches is like, I think really fucking weird. Um, if you only ever wanted to coach other coaches, I could see why you would want to hire a coach that only has coaching clients. But otherwise, like, the hell would you want to work with somebody who is it? Like, I don't know. Anywho, that's my own little rant. But I, I think like that, I called it nepotism. But just um, those are the things that are broken. And I like, yeah, anywho, um, reduce to so this like FOMO pressure, like the whole sales cycle that can often happen where you have to buy now and it's never going to happen again. And there's only two spots left. And like all of that is actually bullshit. And as soon as you get into it, like, you know, <laughs> this isn't working. Um it's funny. I'm like, does this feel like I'm just trying to sell everybody? It's not. It's it's what I'm doing is actually sharing my process with you because I am going through the blue ocean strategy right now. And this is just where my head's at. I thought it might be helpful for you as well to just see like in real time how I'm working through this, but just wanted to get that awkwardness out of the way. Um, so no accountability. Like how can I reduce the fact that, you know, if someone works with me and they don't get the results that they want, that there is, there is, um, firstly accountability, both on my part and the client's part. And so there's a couple different ways that this can happen. This is, this is pretty common as well. I'm not, I'm not like reinventing the wheel here, but like you, you take, a like a, a royalty, you take a piece of the income. So if I work and this, this happens with my much like larger, partnerships where I'm actually coming in almost like a CEO, but like my payment is dependent on profit margin. So increasing profit margin by a certain amount as you know, if people are launching, I've done this with like online business and digital businesses. So like taking a percentage of those sales. So the upfront cost of working with me is low because we both have skin in the game, right? So your success quite literally translates into the exchange of my success. Um, also the crazy pricing. So yeah, I just, uh, uh, some of the, some price points for people. I just, I don't know. I have opinions about it. Let's just leave it at that. Um, so like, what are things that could be raised? So which factors should be raised well above the industry standard? Um, so like networking is one of the reasons I created this discord container. I, I feel like for some reason, people aren't talking about working with coaches, coaches, clients aren't necessarily connected with each other. I work with such amazing fucking people. I feel like they should all like know each other and be friends. As, like even like very much outside of even my relationship with them individually. So like that, I don't know how to answer this question. This discord container is quite literally my way of experimenting with this. Um, and so like, I, that's like, I've raised that I've created this. I'm testing it in, in real time. Right. Um, same with partners. Like so many of my people are looking for good accountants or looking for helpful with HR professionals or with it or with art or with design or with copywriting. And like, I tend to work with people that provide those things. Um, I also employ those things in my own business. So like, how can I get better? And I, I keep talking, I know exactly how to do it. I just, I haven't, you know, time. Um, and Amanda, thank you. So, uh, Amanda just shared that blue ocean feels way more intuitive than traditional biz frameworks. I completely agree. Like you can literally like 
whichever thing kind of feels like, ooh, I'd like to explore this. Like, I, I think the analogy for Blue Ocean is so fun because you are an explorer. You're like a pirate, <laughs> the captain of your own ship. And you see all the other boats in the harbor and they're all fucking negotiating with the harbor master and like trying to, you know, they're at the fucking fish shop getting fishes to fish with. <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to go over here. Y'all do your thing. I see a little island. Ain't nobody on it. I'm going to do some sunbathing. I'm going to chill out. And yeah, it, it's like you, you just, you kind of, you follow your Northern star. <laughs> you see how much better I do this? My little projector energy being like, Oh, engage with me. Um, so, okay. I'm going to get off the, the coaching fucking horse now. Um, I do want to just like bring in my financial consulting firm because this is much more like trad business. And I mean, I always say accounting is the second oldest industry in the world. I'm winking right now for anybody that didn't get my joke. Visual. So in terms of like accounting, like what do we need to eliminate? People hate accountants. People think all accountants do is cost money and all they do is expense reporting, telling you all the bad shit that's happening in your business. Yeah. I wouldn't hire that person either. That fucking sucks. What do we need to reduce? The um, fear. Oh, the feast or famine hiring. I can't even read my typed writing. How about that? So people tend to hire accountants when things are really good. And then they fire fucking everybody when things are really bad. You know when you need someone on top of your money is when things are bad. Um, oh, Patrice, you're gonna have to share your accountant's details. That's phenomenal. Um, there are really good accountants out there. They tend to be really busy for obvious reasons, but, uh, yeah, that's the thing I tell people is like, you might need to call like five or 10 different options when you're looking for your accountant. So, but so, um, complicated reporting, I find that and I'm, I, I'm like raising both hands and all 10 toes on this one. Sometimes we can overcomplicate things because we either don't fully understand it or like we're trying to show how smart we are. <laughs> so sometimes accountants, especially in like corporate or outsourced accounting, fractional accounting services can provide this like whole suite of like reporting methodologies and their own like proprietary breakdowns of shit. And it's just like overwhelming and unnecessary. That's why I like, I love the profit first system. It's super fucking simple, like super fucking simple. Um, so, and then finally like unnecessary meetings An efficient in tune accountant should be looking at like three to five reports and you can meet with them monthly and potentially quarterly and get everything you need. Now, that's not at the beginning. At the beginning, there might be like a, a, a higher frequency to ensure success. But like this is why people don't want good accountants or I shouldn't say good. They're, they're not willing to invest in their accounting is because it's been overcomplicated. It feels like too time intensive. Um, and like, they're thinking about it only in like the emergency situations instead of like when things are good. Um, because a good, like if you've got the right reporting and the right resources in place, you know, if the bad stuff is coming, like we, um, w the actual industry that my financial consulting firm came out of when I started was oil and gas. Uh, it is an incredibly complicated, um, 
industry. It's super old school. It's run by like million year old rich white dudes. And then like down to like families that have been like bequeathed an oil rig somewhere in the middle of fucking nowhere. And they're getting like 30 cents a pump. And it's just very, and then it's regulated and blah, 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 blah. Um, we wanted to move into like solar and renewable energies. Hippie, hippie in the house. Um, and like the assumptions, the way that these people worked with each other, the reporting, the complications, the meetings, like it was, it was so obnoxious. And so that's where we started, you know, we honed in on a couple of our very best clients and we started to figure out like, how can we feel like a profitable resource to you instead of just an expense? Um, so what we also then tried to build out was like this enterprise level reporting at a small business level. So how can somebody get the the type of benchmarking and comparisons and data that is only offered at like, you know, a billion dollar business level, but feel like they're getting that insight from a small business perspective meetings. Also, I was like, we're, we're just not fucking doing this anymore. <laughs> like we've got to eliminate, even in the onboarding process, we should be looking at, um, five minutes, like five minute daily meetings. And then from there we can work into like to 30 minute meetings or, you know, whatever it is, but it's just like getting really fucking, um, clear on the efficiencies that we're offering people. So I'm going to move on just because time, time is a thing. Um, but this, so between the tiers of customers, there's, um, and then this ERC framework, which is what they call it, um, the four actions framework, that is like what I'm, I'm very much thinking about just in terms of my own business. Um, so this is the grid. Again, they give you all of the templates. They give you worksheets. There's so much for free in Blue Ocean Strategy. And what I will say is like, go look at it only because... The last time I did something like this, they then realized they could create some like million dollar membership from it and then did it. So, and then everything stopped going away. Now, this is when I referred to this a little bit earlier. So the, and from the blue ocean framework, they think about, I thought this was an interesting analogy as well, as well. Pioneers, migrators, and settlers. Pioneers are blue ocean strategy businesses. So this might also be blue ocean marketing strategies or blue ocean products in your business. This is where you're, you're testing something new or you're taking something you do really well to a new place, potentially with new people, right? So there's, there's a lot of new happening there. The challenge with your pioneers, with your value innovation strategies, there might not be a lot of money. And so it's not just like all blue ocean all the time. It is also like we need to understand our settlers where we are very settled, where we have like staked our claim, where people know us and we know them and they know what we do and we know how to do it. And like, it's all very, um, can't start here, but like, it's almost like you want your pioneers and your settlers to like converge <laughs> because this is where you make your money. Right. And then you've got your migrators. Those are where you're testing value improvement so that you can get to this blue ocean strategy. Now, in a bigger, more established business, this is also the cycle of change is understanding, like, are you dealing? Are you holding? Are you playing? Or are you folding? That's another analogy that I use to just help you understand, like, you're going to be doing different things and thinking about different things in each one of those stages. But like, while you're playing, you know, you got another game coming up and you might be paying attention to like, what cards are going back? Like, what cards are in the deck? Like, what, you know, so anywho. This is just to bring like a big picture to understanding like 
the blue ocean strategy it isn't isn't only blue ocean it is understanding like we're starting where are you now where are you starting and then how do you want to get to where you want to go and you might need to be doing a couple of those things we talk about this a lot in marketing like your four pillars of marketing you know people will say start with one platform on social have some way of people engaging with you live events online live events maybe you have a form of like actual analog marketing where you're printing things and sending them out maybe you have an email newsletter strategy like those are four different ways of working with each of working with your people the blue ocean might be the live your email newsletter might be your settler your social media and um, the things that you're printing and sending out might be migrators, right? So there is a matrix that you're working on here. And that's really what I wanted to highlight with the Pioneer Migrator Settler Map. I think it's really interesting that they are very aware that your blue ocean, your value innovation isn't where the money is going to be. It's actually when that becomes a settler that it really starts cash flowing and generating cash. And so it's 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 an interesting way of thinking because it's like, you know, your, your ship is in the harbor and you're looking at that like deserted paradise island, but you still need to buy the map. You still need to, you know, get the food and the resources on the ship. And then you need to sail and you need to have a bunch of people. We're going to get into that now that like are willing to help you because they believe in you and they, they get where they're going and what you're trying to do. Show you one more thing, just so that you, you understand, like, we're not kind of going through everything right now. So the blue ocean strategy obviously starts with an overview, focuses on value innovation. You look at that strategy canvas to literally like map out how you're showing up in terms of your own business and potentially your competition or your industry at large. So you can kind of see this is where my blue ocean lands. Then you have your buyer utility map, the, the six different reasons why someone might see value in what it is that you do. Your three tiers of non-customers, the people that where your blue ocean most likely lays are the people that just don't even know about what it is you're doing or why you're doing it. They've never been a customer in your industry. The four actions framework, so that grid, the ERCC grid, how are you eliminating, reducing, creating, and raising um, value? And then we've got the pioneer migration. There's a whole bunch more that I'm just not going to have time to get into. But as Amanda said, um, I'm going to focus on what's really jumped out at me. Because again, like this isn't, this framework is not something that hasn't ever been discussed or shared before. It's just the way that they've put it together that I find so inspiring. So the price quarter, I talk a lot about this. Um, it's just really understanding like what is the pricing of your industry? So there's going to be low pricing. There's going to be mid-level pricing and there's going to be upper level pricing. Uh, how you approach those is going to be unique to you and your business. And you'll see like low level pricing, that's the settlers, right? That's where you've got like mass adoption. It's where you can very low cost of acquisition, probably a low cost of input. The opposite is true for your upper level pricing. And so everybody wants to move to these high ticket offerings. Your client expectation, your customer client buyer expectation is going to be a lot higher. So are your partnerships. Like I see so many businesses, so many artists fail because they get to that place that they've all, they get to their blue ocean and they fucking sink. They are not able to meet those expectations. They're not able to meet the demand, not just the sheer numbers, but the demand that someone has when there is that level of exchange. And so it's really like the, 
the introspection and the understanding of that blue ocean strategy is very different than something that is going to be priced at a much lower level. And it's not to say it's better or worse. It's just to understand like this is what we're dealing with. And when you charge a certain amount of money, it's not just because you've been doing it for so long or because your last client was willing to pay it. Like you need to understand what the expectations are and what the assumptions are. That's how you can break through the limiting barriers on not just what it is you're doing and or what other people are doing, but within the industry within which you work at all. So um, I think that one kind of goes without saying, but important to understand. And this was kind of the last thing I'll say about it. So like lower level pricing, you're just doing the same thing, right? You're just like literally copying and replicating and putting it out there and competing on price. Mid-level it's different forms, same fact, same function. So it's same, same, but different, right? You're, you're repackaging it. You're potentially repurposing it. Again, you're putting it in front of new people or in a new space, but it's the same thing. The high level pricing is when it is a completely different form, a completely different function, but it's the same objective. And that I find really interesting to think about, like how, could I completely change like how I'm doing it and what it looks like, but continue to actually kind of deliver the same result? And then you can start to think like, oh, this doesn't have to be more expensive, right? This just needs to feel completely new. Last thing I wanted to talk about is really like implementation. Because again, I think what, what they go through and the rest of it is everything from leadership, um, how to lead, how to go from being a you know a red ocean manager and leader to a blue ocean manager and leader, um, how to get, like how to even know that your business is ready for something like this, that you're ready for something like this. So th there's a lot more sort of um, exploration that happens there. But I thought for just for the rest of our time, it would probably be most useful to talk about like how to get started, um, what like the sort of first steps and then like next steps are, and then some of the things that you might need to look out for. Um, and then lastly, how to be successful. So this first one here is just the, again, the buyer utility. So how do you create a blue ocean? And also like, how do you then replicate that? Cause the final step as with most of these frameworks is like do it again, right? Same with like design thinking, you continually end up at iterate and improve, which means you go back to the beginning and you look at what worked and then you iterate and improve on it. So, you know, this is kind of like, I call these like the hipster flow charts, like buyer utility. Is there exceptional buyer utility in your business idea? Yes. Great. Is your price easily accessible to buyers? Yes. Great. No. Rethink. That's for a blue ocean strategy. If it's not accessible, it can't be blue ocean. Interesting. According to this framework, I'd be curious if anyone actually had an opinion on that because there, uh, I feel like that is very much um, in contradiction. It's contrarian to like, especially in services, they they really they really lean on you just continue to raise your prices. AI and with a lot of the technology we're seeing, that is going to fuck you. But that's just me. Target to profit at your strategic price. Yes. 
So that is, that refers to one of the things I glossed over. Your strategic price is essentially how can you offer the highest level of value innovation minus the cost of production to then get to your price. And so it's looking at strategy and pricing, which you can have, like, if you want to do a deep dive into that, there's like three different chapters on that in the book. But so really like honing in on what is your cost of business? This is where you can kind of get into like cost reductions potentially. But I think rather than thinking about like, how can I continually raise my prices to make more money? It's like, how can I continually raise my value? And in raising my value inherent in that should be efficiencies and um, understand what it is that you do, which should lower your cost of production, whatever that kind of looks like in your business. So then lastly, adoption. What are the adoption hurdles in actualizing your business idea? And are you addressing them up front? that has a little bit more to do with like the cost for your buyer. And so again, really understanding these tiers of customers, who is the customer that's refusing? And then who is the customer that doesn't even know this is an option? Who are the people that, you know, still think of a coach as someone that teaches your soccer team? Or um, who are the people that think accountants are like only an option if you make $500,000 or more? Um, you know, who are the people that think in order to record an album, you have to, uh, spend $30,000, like these assumptions that are made in order to get a certain thing, you have to pay a certain amount, um, or you have to have earned it or justify it. Like, how can you access those different people? So that's just, I, I wanted to pull that out sequence of creating a blue ocean because it helps you understand, like, is this even something that I need to do? Right. So then from there, like getting started. So step one, um, choose the right place to start your Blue Ocean Initiative. So that's, you know, once you've gone through some of those evaluations, your strategy mapping, your um, like ERCC grid, and, and really looking at like, okay, so where is my Blue Ocean? What is it comprised of? Like, what are my leading factors? What is my high value? Who are the tiers of customers I'm trying to access? So on and so forth, right? So that that's just getting started. So then step two is understanding where you are now in terms of like that settler, migrator, pioneer, um, understanding the existing pain points so that that's more of that like ERCC grid, which is like what needs to be eliminated and reduced in my industry, right? Um, and then imagine where you can be. This is really visualizing and um, going to your blue ocean and then find out how to create there. So you reconstruct the market boundaries systematically. Um, I think like about coaching, but it's, it's obviously what I'm thinking about most in my head right now. This is like where group coaching came from is people were working at a very high level, typically with executives or leaders in industry. They were kind of being like, I think it came out of like a mentorship and they realized like, I only have so much time. So if this is going to be literally what I do, I kind of need to get these groups together. Masterminds was absolutely where this started. But mastermind also assumes that you've got a certain caliber of person in the group. <laughs> you don't have to filter for anything other than like, can you pay me what I want to charge you? So um, that like the assumption was, is for, you know, a coaching or a mentor is a one-to-one -one relationship that was broken when people started bringing these into groups. And so then step five is you make your move. And what Blue Ocean Strategy suggests, especially when you're pioneering, when you're testing is like more now again, fail felt forward, you know, all of that, like throw as much shit at the wall as you can and see what sticks. Select and rapidly test your blue ocean move. 
formalize your big picture business model and launch your move. So once you've got traction, once you understand like, oh, this blue ocean is actually a thing, then you kind of move it into a more strategic, um, systemized, like processed way of actually growing your business. So it's, those are pretty like big kind of, I don't know, amorphous concepts. I don't, um, anyone can start with this process and the, you know, what jumps out at you in the way that you're thinking about things, just start there and, you know, gain that understanding. Where are you now? Where do you want to go? And then you can kind of really start dialing in with this, with the blue ocean strategy. So, um, challenges for blue ocean are resources, cognitive, political, and motivational. So this book is based on existing businesses. So going into existing businesses, I think the, the, um, how did they put it? I loved it. There, there has never been a perfect industry or business. So their proposition is every single business needs a blue ocean strategy because at some point your business will start to fail. Your industry could potentially fail. And so with Blue Ocean Strategy, because you're continually breaking down assumptions and you're always testing in wide open waters, places where people or industry simply are not there yet, you should be creating opportunities continually. Now, in this business or in your market or with these new customers, you're going to have four barriers. Firstly, just resources. I think we're all dealing with this all of the time, (laughs) like time, energy, money, right? Secondly, motivation, creating change, especially in large organizations, it's like steering a shipping container, right? But like even creating change in yourself, you know, I've talked to so many artists and there's the classic examples that it's taken thousands of pitches. It took thousands of gigs. It took 10,000 hours, like getting the motivation to stay the course, to continue testing, to continue trying new things is a challenge something to be aware of. And if you're the one leading a blue ocean strategy, you need to preempt the fact that people are going to lose faith and going to lose hope. This is also cognitive. We are so committed to the status quo. It's funny. I was just listening to people talking about how, um, like this, the ultimate entrepreneur and going into a room and saying, when we walk out of this room, the one thing we're not going to do is the status quo. We are not going to keep doing the same thing. So we can kill it or we can come up with a new idea, a new solution, but we're not maintaining the status quo. So let's just be very clear about that. And I thought that was just a really brilliant way of like managing expectations in terms of the type of leader and the the blue ocean strategy that you're committed to. I don't even know what it is, but I know what it's not. And it's what we've been doing. It's what everybody else is doing. It's the problem at hand. So we either just simply stop doing that until we figure something else out, or we take this time to figure it out. But like, we're, we're not going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. The last is political. And I look at this almost like all of the things that you think are happening to you. And so just knowing you're going to have naysayers, like you're going to have all of these problems. And so the political, and you might have some like issues with that particular word. I think of it like the game playing, right? That needs to happen. It's like, you know, there's an existing framework, you know, there's existing assumptions, you know, there's a lack of resources, you know, there's going to be lack of motivation that people are going to have these cognitive bias. They're going to be so much more comfortable with what's happening. Like 
How are you going to get ahead of that? That's the real strategy in Blue Ocean Strategy. And um, they talk a lot about like the, the, they go very deep into this, but the humanistic um, process here. And so you need to be able to expand people's horizons. You need to be able to inspire people and allow them to feel confident. And you need to make this a creative process. And again, they go much further into this, but like, how do you do that? Through buy-in through advocacy, through influence, through like a consigliere, you find the people in your experience, whether that's your business or your industry or your immediate environment, who, who already believe in you and are confident in you, who are also seeking change for a variety of different reasons. You find the person who's probably going to be most negatively affected by the change and you get ahead of that. And so you bring people into your process, most especially the naysayers, to allow them to get on your boat and sail with you to the blue ocean strategy or like they ain't coming along, right? And that doesn't mean like you have to cut ties and fire them or whatever. It just might mean like they're not on this project or like you don't share openly with them. So it it's like understanding like, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> there are There are so many different, factors and creating a blue ocean strategy and getting really creative and increasing value without increasing price. And you're going to be trailblazing. You're going to be rule breaking. You're a rebel in doing this. And that's again, what they would argue is, but like you're on your own over here. Now that can be really lonely. It can also be very inspiring. So prepare for that, understand that. And again, they offer like 20 different chapters on this particular part as well. Like there are ways that you can get strategic about the naysayer, about the person that just wants to maintain the status quo. I talk a lot about this in energy leadership. Like how can you, you know, for that level two or that level one or that level four, like how can you allow them to be a part of your win, 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 your level five and six, while also allowing them to stay exactly where they're at? Because like even in that space, there is a benefit to everybody. That's why they're there. Okay. Last slide. Um, and I, I, I liked, I guess, obviously I'm biased. I liked this whole thing. I was surprised at how much I liked this book. I'm going to be really honest with you. I, um, you know, I, I read a lot of marketing frameworks and management business theory. I mean, I studied it for years, like, and I think Amanda, you nailed it. It feels very intuitive. It feels very creative. I like it because like you are breaking all of the rules, which speaks very near and dear to me, but it, it's like, it's still a framework. It still simplifies things. It still makes like value innovation is incredibly challenging. Like value innovation is the iPhone. Value innovation is every business that you see or every product that you see that you're like, that like that has been done a hundred times and I have to buy what you just did. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it's, it's when you nail it, it's legitimate magic and it it's electric feeling. And so I, I'm really excited about like diving deep into this framework with everything that I'm doing right now. And like, I think I said this when I was sharing, like it really is influencing everything and changing everything I'm doing in 2023. So lastly, like the humanness in the process, how can you make, how can you make sure you are successful with the blue ocean strategy? They talk about atomization, firsthand discovery, and fair process. 
I'm going to go backwards in that because I think the first is the best, but anyhow, so fair process is just recognizing everybody who's going to be a part of this strategy. Everyone like, and this is where I think disruptors and like cancel culture, um, kind of miss the mark. This isn't about blue ocean strategy. Isn't about destroying something or deconstructing something or getting rid of something. It's about 1000% recognizing the amazingness or like the hideousness that has been. And then like taking away the one or two of those key factors and trying something new. So we are like standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And you might, you, you will probably have people that you've been working with for a really long time, whether again, it's your friends and family, whether it's existing businesses or business partners or team members, or like even just services and vendors and just kind of understanding, like, I'm going to be making a very significant change. This will affect the people and places and things around me. I'm going to maintain awareness and I'm going to bring people in on that as soon as possible so that I can at least get buy-in and support. That's how people perceive fair is did they know that this was happening? Did they have an opportunity to participate? That's fucking it. They do go into all of these different case studies, especially in terms of management and like the leading factor in determining success was fair process. Did people feel like this was fair? And they can disagree. They cannot like it. They cannot like they could have actively voted against it, but they got to vote. Right. Firsthand discovery. So people like we love new more now than everything. And that's kind of like the crux of blue ocean strategy is you start to develop the skill set for newness. You start to embrace the new. This is why I'm obsessed with Web3 right now. It's not Web3. It's saying yes to future. It's saying yes to success. Blue Ocean Strategy is a systemic way of saying yes to something I don't know. I can't see it. I haven't discovered it yet, but like I'm willing to believe it's fucking there and I'm going to chart a course for it, right? Atomization. The reason I left this one last and the reason why this is going to be the last thing I touch on, um, Lizzie, you know why, is breaking things down into bite-sized pieces. It is like taking these, you know, you're charting a course to fucking nowhere. Like you don't know where you're going or how you're going to get there, but you have the faith and the belief that it's possible. And then you map out the day-to-day duties. You know, you got to, am I going to go into a fucking pirate analogy right now? You got to like, wash the decks and raise the sails, (laughs) like cook the food and then clean the food. And like, you know, is that, is that part of like the overall mission sort of, but you give, you know, you have these activities, you have these processes, you have this like day-to-day structure, this day-to-day system that you lean into because you know, if you just take that one further step, if you just bite off that one piece of food, if you just make it doable and digestible and understandable, you're going to get there. And that's why atomization is the last thing. Um, thank you. This, this, I can't even believe this was an hour and a half. Uh, that went by so fucking fast. Thank you all of you for staying in here. You all fucking stuck it out. It's amazing. Um, thank you for chatting for all the comments. I'm so glad I'm doing this live. This is the best. And, um, yeah, you know where to find me. Hello at NicoleBZ.com. I have yet to pick the next book or announce the next day. It's going to be towards the end of February. I'm aiming to do the last Friday of the month in the morning. Okay. So let's just move that there. Cause then I can get all of my like Aussies and UKs and everybody. So 
Um, and Friday feels like such a better day than Monday. But thank you again for being here. Um, lots of fun things rolling out. Love your workshop should be happening probably within a week. And then I'm sure you'll be able to access that download. We've got your um, the Psychic Profit Squad, which is going to be launching in March. So listen to you know everything. I'm going to be doing deep dives into why all of these things are so important. We've got exit strategy, building better boundaries for people pleasers. <laughs> I'm leaning in because someone knows. But okay, I'm going to hop off. I will. Um, I'm just so grateful you were all here. Thank you so much.